0: All right, friends, we're going to uh, switch gears now. Um, and we're, there it is. The Ten Commandments of Love are on. It, so, it somehow worked. So it's a little, a little thin, but we'll get it playing another time. <laughs> now, I, now I can't shut it off. <laughs> There we go, okay. We'll we'll, we'll play it next time. It'll be fun. All right, well, let's begin session two of our first week, which is the Decalogue 101. This is kind of the the, the quick and dirty background to the Decalogue, Um, but it might not be that quick, as you know me. So we're going to begin with a task. As some of you know, I like to occasionally do something uh, called a TAPS exercise. Uh, TAPS means talking, aloud, paired, Sharing TAPS. It's a way to get folks talking about a given subject before we introduce the content. And so you have a TAPS assignment, but we're not going to just do it in pairs. I feel like this assignment requires whole tables, more collaborative knowledge, more minds, the better. Here's what we're going to do. Your assignment is this: Can you name each commandment and put them in their relative order? Now, what I'm not a- now, hang on, hang on. What I'm not asking for is for you to number them. And there's a reason I'm not going to ask you to number them. But what I would like is their content. You don't need to give me the whole words. You could say, don't kill. That would suffice for that commandment. So give me the content in the relative order. Um, I'm hoping, I meant to bring uh, pencils uh, and paper, and I'm sorry that I didn't do that. But hopefully someone around your table uh, could be the scribe and write down your answer. I should say, if you want to look around at your table and move in light of what you see, You have about five minutes to do this. You guys have the disadvantage. Only two here, but, but a strong two. No, no no internet checking now. No, no, no checking the sources. <laughs> I want to see no iPads, no iPhones, no Googling, no checking the back of the index. This is a strong table. I feel good about this table right here. Strong table. Is there a question? <laughs> What's that? We can't. No, no, this has to be straight from our Christian ed knowledge. <laughs> How we doing? Okay, we're heading, we're heading, nine, that's not bad. That's, that's, that passes, A. That's a, that's a good grade. <laughs> you guys doing okay? Not bad, not bad. See if you can split apart one of those two to get another commandment out of it. It actually works. (laughs) That's okay, that's okay. Hey, all we need to beat is 50% and then we beat the average for Protestants. So it's a low bar, it's a very low bar. Perfect, you've doubled the average. another version, like you said, we got 15, all we got 10 comes down. And he says, "Listen, got good news and bad news. I got him down to ten. <laughs> bad news: adultery's still in there. <laughs> I'm sure this table has it figured out. I'm not even going to check. I'm just assuming that you've got 100% perfect. Uh oh, split something apart. Maybe there's two and one. Don't steal, really. I mean it. Don't steal. That's the second one. Oh, I see, I hope there's not some Googling going on. Lisa, I'm a a big, high hopes over there, high hopes. Tillman, Tillman, you're running that ship. All right, friends, let's come back together. All Let's come back together. I'm interested in the results. Now remember this was an honor code exercise So if there was googling, I will not know but little baby Jesus will know that you googled the answer <laughs> The second thing is remember the bar is extremely low. The average Protestant knows only five of these So if you've gotten six you're above average and doing well. So what do we got? Let's again We're not going to number, but let's start at the top And see see how many we can get. So where do we begin? No other gods. gods. Okay, great start. What else? No No graven images. Okay, that's two. God's name in vain. vain. I'm hearing Sabbath. Do you like the order so far? Okay, not bad. You've actually off to a good start. No other gods. No idols. Divine name in vain. Sabbath is the next one. Here's where it starts to get a little murky. Where do we go from here? Father and mother after Sabbath, great. Then what? Murder. Good. In what order? Kill, steal. We we got to some of them. Some of that's right. Now we're going to say more about the middle of this list in a moment. But you guys are off on of the good track. Sabbath, parents, murder, adultery. Adultery. Then what? The last column is tough. Coveting is in there. Is it next, though? False witness is in there. There are two covets. Wonderful. And what are the two covets? That's right. Your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's stuff are different. And they're both different than stealing, too. So here is our list. Now, we actually all missed one. You actually missed the first one. No? You got false. I think someone got false wisdom. I feel like I heard that. What's that, Tim? I am the Lord thy God. You missed the prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Almost every single one of you missed the very first. So what's the problem here exactly? How many are up there? 12. So is this not the Decalogue, or is this the Duo Decalogue, <laughs> the 12 Commandments? What happened? This poses a problem. False witness is the lying. Well, lie, False witness and lying is it's just another way to say the same thing there. So we have a problem. I have advertised this course as a 10 Commandments, and we have done this exercise, and we have come up with 12 Commandments. What's the catch? Yeah, the the other three are the ones uh, Mel Brooks dropped. So that's our problem. We've got 12 things listed. How do we square this with there being 10 Commandments? Well, there's three things to keep in mind, three things to keep in mind. First, in the Old Testament, particularly in the two places where the 10 Commandments occur, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the 10 Commandments are not numbered. When you go look at that text, right, you'll see verses, but there's no number one, number two, number three, or first, second, third, fourth. In fact, in the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, there would have been no verses to even delineate the Ten Commandments. It all just would have been a continuous text. So there's no numbers in the Ten Commandments, so there's no numbering. And in fact, in the presentation of the Decalogue in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, at no point is there even any reference to there being 10? So not only are the commandments not numbered, but the the commandments themselves never refer to themselves as being 10. Only in in a couple other places outside of the 10 commandments is there a reference to there being 10 of these things. So that's the first point. The second is because of the fact that they are not explicitly numbered and there weren't nice little verses in the old Hebrew Bible, it's not entirely clear where one commandment begins and the next ends. Now in some cases it's clear, thou shalt not murder, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, they seem like to be pretty clear, discreet commandments. But in some cases, the lines are blurry. For instance, consider uh, coveting the neighbor's wife and coveting thy neighbor's self. They might be merged, for instance, into one commandment. That is, don't covet anything your neighbor has whether it's a wife, a dog, a car, a house, or a boat, or anything like that. So that could be compressed into one commandment. Does anyone see another place where commandments might be combined to help us get from 12 to 10? Gods and idols, that's right. So these two could be very, could be uh, kind of part A and part B of one commandment. Thou shalt have no other god beside me, by which I mean, don't make idols. So so that second part could specify what it means to have no other gods beside me. Now, we're actually going to take up that issue at the very, very beginning of next week, and I have an idea about how I think those commandments are related. So we'll kind of get into the weeds of that next. Here's a third thing you need to know. In the Hebrew Bible, the Ten Commandments are not called commandments. This is perhaps the most paradoxical part of the whole thing. There's, there's not ten of, well, it's ambiguous whether there's ten, and it's ambiguous whether they are commandments. So we call them the Ten Commandments, and both terms are a bit problematic. What are they called in the Ten Commandments? Well, the word for commandment in Hebrew is mitzvah, as in bar mitzvah, um, uh, uh, son of the covenant, or bat mitzvah, daughter of the covenant. These are not called mitzvot covenants, they're called devarim. And devar in Hebrew is simply the word for word. So these in Hebrew are simply the ten words. Now, why is that important in terms of our numbering system here? Well, if these are not commandments but words, that means that the prologue could in fact count as one of the ten, even though there's not a commandment in that part of the scripture. I am the Lord the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That could be a word that we would number among the Ten Commandments because we don't, it doesn't have to be a, uh, a commandment per se. Make sense so far? So, this ambiguity about what the ten are out of this list has spawned three different numbering traditions. One in the Jewish tradition, one shared by Lutherans and Catholics, and the other shared by ref- broadly reformed traditions and Anglicans. Um, and so I want you to, to make some, ob- we want to go through each of these, working from left to right. There's a lot of similarity, right? So most of the stuff in the middle Same order, right? There's not a disagreement in these lists, by the way, about the relative ordering of the Ten Commandments. But as a side note, when you look at other references, and we'll talk about this more later in the course, when you look at other references, like in the Gospels, in Paul, and in the prophets, there's a discrepancy about the ordering of the Ten Commandments. Does stealing come before murder? Does murder come before adultery? You actually can find, and we'll look at this more closely in future weeks, differences which either means the prophets or uh, the Gospel writers got it wrong, they too would have had some trouble at their tables, or it means that there wasn't a set order for the Ten Commandments until much later. We'll explore that idea, but in either case, in these traditions there is a set order, but note what happens in the Jewish tradition. The Jewish tradition, and I I really like this about it, it labels the prologue as Commandment 1. It's a way of saying I I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That is in substance part, and actually a critical part, as we'll say later today, of what the Ten Commandments are. So in the Jewish tradition, that's called commandment or word one. Then um, they combine the no gods and the no idols commandment. So they kind of gain back. A commandment that way. So they add one, I- in a certain sense, by counting the prologue. Then they combine uh, the no gods and no idols together, but they still need to get back one more, because remember there was 12. That brings it down to 11. They get down to 10 by combining neighbor's wife and neighbor's stuff. Okay. Now, let's check out the Reformed and Anglican tradition. What does it do in comparison to the uh, Jewish tradition? Well, it doesn't label the prologue as commandment one. So that gains back a commandment, but what it does do is it differentiates between no gods and no idols. And it also combines coveting neighbor's wife and coveting neighbor's stuff. Now, check out the, the Catholic and the Lutheran. To me, this is the most interesting, although I, I think it's, um, in my opinion, it's, it's, um, it has the least biblical support to it. In the Lutheran and, and uh, Roman Catholic tradition, uh, They take the prologue, no gods and no idols, and make it all one command. So it's really a three-part command. I'm the Lord your God. You should have no other gods beside me, by which I mean don't create idols. That's all one command. But then the Lutherans and Catholics have a problem. They need to gain back a command because they've combined three together. And the way they do that is by splitting the neighbor's wife and the neighbor's stuff. Now. To make all of this even a bit more complicated, if it's not complicated enough, the two versions of the Ten Commandments in the scriptures differ. Now, not by a lot, and only sometimes by a few words or a motivation, but one place it significantly differs is in the Exodus and Deuteronomy version of these last two commandments. In one case in the book of Deuteronomy, those two commandments are set apart. It's do not covet your neighbor's... uh, uh, house and do not covet your neighbor's stuff. There's two different verbs and two different objects. In the Exodus version, there's one verb, do not covet, and then there's a list of things not to covet. So even in scripture themselves, one might count differently about what the Ten Commandments are. So already I hope you see that this very common, this very simple 17 verse uh, set of laws is already a little more complicated and not as simple as we might think. So I want to go on to another set of questions, but let me pause here. Anything about uh, this list, or the ordering, or the traditions that emerge from it? Yes? I find it uh, a little bit confusing, uh, because prologue, the prologue, to me, seems like author. It's like it's identifying who the author is uh-huh. of these mm-hmm. And um, I just, I've never thought of it as one of the comments. Yeah. Well, and again, I think we because we have the idea of these being commandments firmly set in our minds, it just doesn't make sense. There's no command in that prologue. But if we think of these as words, as it literally is in the Hebrew, I think it opens up some space. Now what we might do, interestingly, is we could reflect theologically on what's the difference, particularly at the beginning. What's the difference of either calling the prologue a commandment or not, or kind of leaving it out? Um, it's not on any of those monuments, by the way, in any of the courtrooms. Does it Paul? No, I think murder is murder in all three cases. I think so. Um, you know, one thing is that I'm a, I'm a bit split to kind of show my cards on which I prefer. Um, I'm split kind of halfway between the Reformed and Jewish tradition. In one sense, I like the Jewish tradition explicitly names what God has done as as an important part of the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to say more about why at the very end of this lecture. So I like that. I like giving the priority. Because if you you leave it as just prologue, you're apt to not include it. Like in those monuments, you're apt to to just start at what God has, or, or what we must do, no other gods. And it leaves out any mention of what God has done for us. And in the context of the Ten Commandments, Our obedience is predicated on what God has already done. It's not just a list, it's a narrative. Our devotion is a response to God's deliverance of the Israelites, and I think that is essential to keep in mind, uh, particularly in Christian theology, and I think we have much to thank our Jewish brothers and sisters for that point. However, I do think, as a nod to the Reformed tradition, that uh, no other gods and no idols are very different things, and I'll develop an argument next week about why I think they are—they should not be merged together, but really uh, target two very specific theological claims that are central not only to the Old Testament, to the New. So I'll flesh that out. I have no way to resolve that then, because I'm left with 11 commandments in that case, and I'm okay with that for now. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff? Right. God, yes. world, that's right yes that's right that's right yeah and, and, the real, and we'll look more with that the kind of the narrative background of these commandments let me move on to a second question what's on each tablet now some of you have heard me ask this question before so I'm going to exempt you in a part from this conversation uh, but maybe you've forgotten as well um, what's on each tablet there's two tablets right the scriptures tell us there's two tablets so what's on Tablet 1 and what's on Tablet 2? How are they divided? So what's the dividing line? They're, they're the two tablets. By the way, these are the real props from the Ten Commandments movie from Charlton Heston movie. And actually, here's what's really cool about this, y'all. It's, uh, you know, of course, it's a Hollywood movie, but. Um, Cecil B. DeMille was very concerned about certain aspects of historical accuracy. Of course, the whole movie is is a fiction based on this story, but he was concerned about certain historical uh, peculiarities. And if you've ever studied Hebrew, Lisa, you would would know this. This isn't the Hebrew that we have in our Hebrew Bibles. What it is is something called Paleo-Hebrew. It's the script of the Hebrew um, that would have—that's really, really old, like 10th century, 11th century. So Cecil B. DeMille was sensitive enough historically to—he uh, must have had some consultant, uh, some scholar consultant who helped him write these letters. 10th or 11th, or B. Oh, BCE. Yeah, this is some, this is the oldest Hebrew writing that we have before we get the nice round uh, script or square script that we you know of from modern Hebrew. Um, I can't read this very well. I mean, it, it's very different uh, looking than Hebrew. Um, anyway, he was sensitive to those sorts of uh, to those issues. Anyway, what's on each commandment, or what's on each tablet? Where do, you, where do you split the difference? Well, yeah, well, one through four, maybe even one through five. Maybe you just say, look, um, uh, the, you know, there are, um, I'm going to skip past this quote here, um, maybe may just five and five, right? It's even. It's five on this one, and it's five on that one, except that the first five commandments in total of words is way longer than the second five commandments. So Moses would have had to use a smaller font on tablet one if he simply did five and five, right? Again, you'll not be surprised that I did stuff like this, but I actually counted the number of words in the Hebrew version in the Exodus of the, old, of, of the Ten Commandments. There are about 180 words in Hebrew. The middle, 90 words, is Exodus 29, and it's the near the middle to beginning part of the Sabbath commandment. So if you were just dividing it up based on the number of words, kind of 50%, 50%, it would be about three and a half uh, commandments on this tablet, and then the rest six and a half on this other tablet. So. So that's an interesting thing, Dale, right? This is something we forget. In this this description, Exodus 32, Moses turned and went down from the mountain, carrying the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, the tablets that were written on both sides. Now that's going to become important in a second, but it's something we rarely think about, right? All of these props, all of these depictions of the Ten Commandments, they're clearly one-sided. They're clearly one-sided, but the text tells us Moses wrote on both sides, or maybe God wrote on both sides. So five and five, it it doesn't work, at least in terms of distribution of words. Perhaps maybe it was three and a half, six and a half to get the right words amount. Perhaps, and this has been suggested by Philo, it was organized topically. That is to say, all of the commandments that deal with things of God are on one tablet, and all the commandments that deal with human relations, human ethics, are on the other tablet. The problem with that, I think, and we'll work this out throughout the semester, the, the course, is that uh, it's a false dichotomy. The things of the first commandment, the things of God, have ethical human implications, and the stuff of the, the human relationships have everything to do with your relationship of God. So though there is some difference in the content of the tablets, and we, uh, or the content of the commandments, we might distinguish them that way, there really is a false digot- dichotomy to say one is about God and one is about neighbor. Here's what I think the answer is, and again, some of you know this. Most likely, these are the two tablets were carbon copies or duplicates. That is to say, the same exact content was on both of the tablets. There were two copies or two, not versions, two, uh, uh, yeah, two uh, carbon copies or two copies of the tablets. Now, why would this be the case? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was very, very, very common for very powerful kings to make covenants or treaties or agreements with less powerful kings. In fact, much of the biblical idea of covenant is paralleled or based on the sort of treaty that one king would make with another king in the ancient world. But in all of these treaties, and we have copies of these, in all of these treaties, at the very bottom, one of the last things you find is a provision for making a copy of the agreement. And the idea is one king gets one copy of the agreement and the other king gets the other copy of the agreement. And they need to be carbon copies because both kings and nations need to know the terms of the agreement. And so what's most likely the case is that the same thing is at play here with the Ten Commandments. One tablet complete with Ten Commandments was for God, and one tablet complete with Ten Commandments was for Moses. There weren't two tablets, or there were But it's the same content. So that kind of iconic image that we have of the Ten Commandments of two tablets representing the total content is probably not right. Paul, yeah. In these, there would often be. It's a good point. There often in uh, these uh, these times when treaties or covenants were set up between kings, there would be a ceremony to ratify the covenant, and that would often involve a sacrifice and this is kind of brings us a little bit beyond the Ten Commandments, but it involves a sacrifice, and the two parties um, would walk through the sacrifice as a way of saying, may we be cut in two like this animal if either side breaks the covenant. Now, what's interesting about that is in Genesis, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, um, Abraham has a dream after that covenant, and what he sees, he kind of pictures this sort of ceremony with an animal cut in two, but what passes between it is not Abraham and God, but rather is God himself, as if to say God alone is the keeper of that covenant. It doesn't require a bipartisan agreement in that context as it does for most ancient Eastern treaties, but God alone was the keeper of the covenant with Abraham. Okay. Okay. I want to do uh, two more things in our remaining about 15 minutes or so. I want to say something a little bit about what sort of commandments are these, and by that I don't mean their content or their meaning, but what sort, what type of commandment, what's the style of commandment that we find in the Decalogue? Um, well, for one, some of this is rather obvious. One, it's repeated commandment. It's the only law code in the Old Testament that is repeated. There's Exodus 21 through 17 and Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 21. They're almost identical versions of the Ten Commandments. In the ancient world, repeating something was a means of emphasis. It's probably true today. It's probably true today. Um, So, they're repeated and it's something obvious uh, to take note of. Second, it's in the form of direct address, especially in the Exodus account the deity, God, is reported as directly giving these commandments to the people. Directly giving the commandments to the people. In the, in the Deuteronomy version it's a bit different because Deuteronomy, the frame of narrative frame of Deuteronomy is Moses kind of recounting what happened back in the wilderness when the Ten Commandments were given and other things happened. And so there's some kind of narrative interruption uh, in a few of the commandments um, that make it different than Exodus. So for instance, Exodus 28 says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The same commandment in Deuteronomy 5.12 sounds like this. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Clearly it's Moses speaking. He's referring to God in the third person, whereas in the Exodus version, it's more direct address of God to the Israelites. A rabbinic tradition, in fact, maintains um, that the first two commandments were directly related to the people and the other eight commandments were mediated by Moses uh, as kind of a relayer to them. So, repeated, direct address. The third thing, I'm gonna give you a fancy word, is that these are apodictic laws, apodictic laws. What an apodictic law is, it means something that is clearly established or beyond dispute. In other words, these are general laws. Uh, We know this from, um, actually from the Hebrew, literally the Hebrew. The Hebrew has two ways of saying no. One word for no, low, is used in cases where it's a general prohibition. Don't do this, don't murder. Not, don't murder just today, don't murder. Hebrew uses low. In other cases where the the, the prohibition is specific, the Hebrew uses a completely different negation. The Hebrew uses all. So I might say, um, Doug, do not rejoice today. Because the Eagles are out of the playoffs. (laughs) It's a sad day. but that wouldn't be to say to Doug, never rejoice. It's just specifically right now, in this particular moment in context, don't do something. Well, in the Ten Commandments we have low. We have that general prohibition. So these are general laws, um, but they're not the sort of thing, think of it this way, if you had a copy of the Ten Commandments and you were a judge in ancient Israel, Margaret, maybe I'll defer to you on this question. If you were a judge in ancient Israel and you had just the Ten Commandments, would it be easy to judge cases? Would it be easy to, under, to know what sort of punishment to give? Not really, right? The Ten Commandments are really different than a legal code. I mean, they are law. They are, it is about law and legality and judicial matters. But the Ten Commandments aren't specific enough to give you guidance as a judge about what to do in specific cases. For instance, what counts as murder? What counts as Sabbath breaking? What what punishments apply? If it's manslaughter versus murder, if it's killing in battle versus uh, some other form, what, what are the punishments? You actually need a legal code to help flesh out what to do in both cases. It's something more akin than the Ten Commandments is to the Constitution rather than the Georgia legal code. They're really different things. You don't don't judge with the Ten Commandments. You use the Ten Commandments um, as kind of a policy document. right? It informs an ethical perspective or stance in the world, but it doesn't give you the particulars of how to legislate based on that. Finally, and this is already alluded to, the Ten Commandments are not written in stone. From the get go, they're open to interpretation. They're open to specification and elaboration. In the material that immediately follows the Exodus version of the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20:19 through 23:33, we have something called the Covenant Code, which is not necessarily important for you to know, but it's a discrete um, collection of laws called casuistic laws or case laws. What they're doing is they're taking the absolute general commandments of the ten, uh, general commandments in the Decalogue, and then kind of giving you case scenarios. So, so the uh, the Covenant Code reads something like this: If such and such happens than this. You use the covenant code as a judge. You use the Ten Commandments to inform an ethical stance and perspective in the world. So in in these cases, the Ten Commandments are being applied. In some cases, they're being clarified or specified. Um, The prophets do this as well. Um, And of course, the Gospels do this. Um, They take up the Ten Commandments. What's important to note, and we'll see this throughout the course of uh, of the class, the Gospels never negate the Ten Commandments. This is a very mistaken view. Some people say, you know, in, that, uh, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. But people often understand it as Jesus kind of turning over the Ten Commandments or invalidating them. But in every case, what Jesus does is he either internalizes the Ten Commandments or intensifies it. So what Jesus does is not to turn over the Ten Commandments, but he makes it harder to keep them. And we often get this wrong in Christian circles when we set up this dichotomy between new and old, gospel and law. We think of Jesus just doing away with the law. In fact, he doesn't. In the case of the Ten Commandments, he makes it harder to live by them. So, And we'll take up more of a question of uh, the place of the Ten Commandments in Christian ethics later. I want to say one final thing uh, before we close um, for for this first uh, first two sessions. I want to deal a little bit with the prologue. As we go on from here, I'm gonna actually defer to the uh, reform numbering tradition where number one is no other gods. But I do want to treat the prologue because as I said before, I think it is critical for understanding of how the Ten Commandments functions. You have the text here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first thing to note is that the Ten Commandments don't begin with a thou shalt not or thou shalt. It's a shalt. Is that right? That Sh- doesn't sound right. Anyway, thou shalt not. Um, the Ten Commandments begin with a narrative. It begins with a story. It harkens back to something God has done before telling you what Israel must do. It's a law embedded in a narrative. And in this part of the story, um, Israel of course has been, uh, to do a quick recap of Exodus, Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. Um, Moses um, becomes a liberator. God appears to Moses at the burning bush. God, uh, Moses, through God's help, uh, is a liberator of the Israelites. They pass through the wilderness. They pass through the Red Sea. And as you've seen the recent movies with Christian Baal, you know what happens. But they end up on the other side of the Red Sea, a freed people. Except they're not. It took the parting of the Red Sea to get Israel out of Egypt. But it's going to take the Ten Commandments to get Egypt out of the Israelites. See what happened is the Israelites carry with them into the wilderness right after the Red Sea a burden. They carry with them an internalized uh, slavery. They have become affected by the condition of Egypt and just bringing them out of that land into a new land doesn't solve the problem. That doesn't make them a free people. They are free from Egypt but they are not yet free to worship God. And that's where we are, is the Israelites, literally two weeks after, I love this, two weeks after the parting of the Red Sea, the Israelites are grumbling in the desert. It took two weeks. Now, of course, you and I would be far more content and patient, but it took two weeks for the Israelites, after this amazing, miraculous event, to begin grumbling in the desert about water and food and many, many other things. Three months later, they reach the base of Mount Sinai, where God um, begins the process of transforming this enslaved, once enslaved people into a people who are truly free, people who are truly delivered out of Egypt. Um, In fact, uh, this was where the people gained their vocational calling as God's people. In Exodus 19, I think I have this text up. uh, In Exodus 19, five and six, God calls the Israelites in this way. He says, now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, it's a covenant he's going to about to give. He's referring to the Ten Commandments. You shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me, here's the key to their vocational calling, a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you should speak to the Israelites. Priestly kingdom and holy nation. This is a description of how Israel is to be set apart from all the nations of the world. Uh, as a people um, who will reflect and embody and mirror back to God uh, the sense of holiness um, and priestly sacredness uh, that, that God uh, reflects in the world. So the end of the Exodus then is not the other side of the Red Sea. The end of the, ex- uh, the Exodus is becoming a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. It's only in living, to this, living into this calling that Israel truly becomes free of their oppression in Egypt. We might really call it a process of formation or even a process of discipleship. Now, this is exactly what the prologue directs us to. The fact that everything the Israel, uh, excuse me, let me put it this way, that the experience of deliverance from Egypt is meant to lead to the Israelites' devotion to God. It's an important point in an Exodus narrative that the, the point of the Exodus is not, uh, about a f- uh, it's not to free the people, um, but to create a freed people who are capable of worshiping God. This, this point is very poignant in the Hebrew. Let me read a, a text here uh, to bring us to a close. In uh, Exodus 8.1, we typically think of the Exodus as with that phrase, let my people go. You know, the great hymn, let my people go. Well, there's more to the Exodus than that. In 8.1, if I can find it, we hear the second part of the Exodus narrative. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go, no period, comma, so that they may worship me. The point of Exodus isn't just freedom from slavery, but it's a freedom to go then and do something else, a freedom to go then and worship God. In Hebrew, this point is, is very clear Because the word for slavery, avadah, is from the same root as the word to worship, avad. So what God is saying here is be freed from the slavery of Egypt so you can serve me. The Exodus is about a transfer of ownership. It's about a transfer of loyalty. It's not just about freedom. It's about being free to do something else, to worship this God. Um, And that is what the prologue reminds us of. We might say that the obligations imposed by the Ten Commandments are rooted in a prior relationship. The Ten Commandments is our grateful response to what God has already graciously done in history. That's how the ancient Israelites would have read this text. It's not an abstract moral code. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's rooted as a response in worship to who God has created the Israelites to be. The emphasis in the prologue is on what God has done There's a reciprocity then in the Ten Commandments. And I'll end on this. There's a reciprocity. The Ten Commandments are inaugurated and initiated by God. And our obedience then to what we are called to do is simply a grateful response to the prior activity and loving care of the one who commands us in the Ten Commandments. Then now the nature of those commandments, their meaning and elaboration is a topic we'll take up next time. Thank you very much for coming out this evening.